John Latta. I'm so excited to have you on our show today talking about you and your book, The Synchronicity of Unconditional Love, and how that helps to heal and, and awaken us. Can you tell me more a little bit about your book and the inspiration behind starting that? Yeah, the book is really, um, it's 119 short true stories of the last, mostly of the last 20 years of my life. <clears throat> it began when I uh, perceived that I'd hit rock bottom when I managed to get divorced, custody of two young children, uh, lost all of our money, and then some, and deeply, deeply in debt. Uh, so I suddenly found myself a single dad um, and feeling like a bad businessman. I'd started my own company and things had not gone well at all. And, um, and at that same time, for some strange reason, I felt like I was being stalked by the fear of death and something I'd never confronted before. And, um, <clears throat> and so um, I attended my first ever spiritual retreat, which was a big leap for me, because I considered myself to be a very rational, logical, anti-spiritual, anti-religious person. It was a huge leap of faith for me. And everything in my life started to change after that. And the funny thing is, everything in my life started to change almost the minute I plunked the money down for the retreat. I remember um, flying in a plane to Southern California where the retreat was, and as the plane touched down, I looked over and the woman sitting next to me was reading the book written by the guy who was leading the retreat. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It's like, oh my God, are you going to the same retreat that I am? And we both checked each other out and decided we both looked normal, so we weren't afraid anymore. And she was just this cute grandmother from Kalispell, Montana. Only two people on the plane going to the streets, sitting side by side. I mean, what are the chances? And so, um, and the retreat was focused on heart-centered meditation, unconditional love. Um, and what I started to notice was the more I followed that path, the more and more sort of coincidences, miracles, synchronicities, like, oh my God, what are the chances of that? Just like the lady sitting on the plane reading the book next to me. A lot of magic was sort of inserted into my life beginning with that. And it's continued to this day. And the book is really sort of 119 true stories. A lot of it focused around dreams um, <clears throat> and how these synchronicities started to inform my life and become a regular part of my life. Mm. That's really powerful. I, I love that as soon as you booked the ticket and were on your way to the retreat, the synchronicities already started happening. Yep. How did, how long did it take you throughout that process for that looming fear of death to kind of subside after you started this like heart centered work? Well, that's a great question. So um, first thing I felt like I was a bad husband, a bad dad, and a bad uh, businessman all at once. And so my company was so deeply in debt. Uh, and I literally had custody of my kids. They were 9-11. The focus was really on trying to not lose everything, trying to hang on to everything, and um, trying to take care of my kids and keep my kids' life as normal as possible. But interestingly, three years later, um, I joined a year-round study group, a spiritual study group, and I, boy, it was really cool. I remember it like yesterday, the month of November, the teacher said, for the month of November, we're going to explore the mystery of death. And I thought, oh my God, here's my chance. And he goes, 
if you, I want you to pretend like the end of this month, you're going to die. If you don't have a will, get a will. If there's people you need to make amends with, make amends with them. You know, if there's anything you need to say to anybody, now's your chance. And he goes, I want you to meditate on death, pray on death, read books on death, listen to music on death. In other words, do the very thing that most people don't do. And that's turn around and embrace it rather than running away from it, burying it, hiding it. And it was the most transformative month of my entire life. All these dreams came through. It's like, oh, okay, we're going to teach you all about death. And in a way, I kind of had my own near-death experience during that period of time. And it was unbelievably freeing. I may have a little things that trip me up, but death is not one of them anymore. And it definitely taught me sometimes the best thing to do when you're really afraid of something and you're really running away from it, turn around and embrace it. There's a great story Judith Orloff tells in her book, Second Sight, about um, she and another man had formed a, a partnership, a business. I think they had a, a psychiatry office that they were running together. And <clears throat> there was a lot of tension building up between them uh, and things weren't being said. And she had this really profound dream of this giant fire chasing her. And she was running from it, running from it. And this voice in the dream said, you know, if you turn around and face the fire, it won't be so bad. And so she stopped running, turned around, and it, it just disappeared. And she knew from that dream, it was like, I need to confront my business partner. I need, there's some things we need to talk about. I keep running and avoiding it. And so um, that's been, you know, the biggest lesson for me is if I'm really tense, triggered, running away from something, turn around, face it, embrace it. It almost inevitably turns out to be not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. Mm. I love that because fear for so many people in whatever way that it shows up, that's exactly our first instinct. It's our primal instinct and our survival instinct to run away from it. <laughs> like if there's a cheetah chasing you, you're not turning towards the cheetah. And yeah. now it's it's like we have evolved to a point and it's, it's, I think it happens in everyone's own personal journey as they evolve, they learn the tools to be able to understand that fear is really just an indicator yeah. that it, that there's something in, in your path that you can, that is kind of just standing in your way and it's not detrimental and it's not going to harm you in a life or death sense most of the time. And it, it's really just built up. The mind does a really good job of building up those fears. And so to just turn towards it and, and acknowledge it and just kind of take it head on. And then it kind of shrinks into this yeah. <laughs> little baby cub. <laughs> like, and, and so that's really, that's really powerful. John, can you, in your book, you talk about the language of dreams. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? I'm so curious. Oh, sure. Pick the toughest thing. So, <laughs> uh, well, so I did share in the book um, about a year into my journey, I joined a dream forum and um, the guy leading it had a, a process for how to remember your dreams. And I followed that and it was actually kind of amazing how quickly I started having dreams, remembering dreams, writing dreams down. And the first thing I stumbled up against was, I have no freaking idea what this dream is trying to tell me. They just seem like fantasy gibberish, you know what I mean? And, um, <clears throat> but what I learned is, at least in the beginning, dreams uh, are speaking to us primarily through symbols. 
And it can be really confusing because, you know, um, I'll use a crow for an example, the bird. You know, a crow can mean many things to many people. It can have a very personal meaning. I had this experience where a baby crow had fallen out of a nest. I scooped it up, put it in a box, and it was so cute. <laughs> and I remember it opening its mouth like, are you going to feed me? And it's like, but other people look at crows as these annoying birds or symbols of death, or it's unbelievable. And so for me, a crow has a very... I, I love crows and I have just because of that one. And so that's why I'm saying a dream can have a very personal meaning. Um, I had another dream and only a fisherman would know this. I used to love to fly fish and I um, out in Florida, those, that beautiful Caribbean water where it looks like an oversized swimming pool. And it's a lot of it's only like waist deep. Um, fly fishermen stalk the flats like a heron might stalk you know, uh, very slowly. And one of the prize fish is called a permit because they're very, very sensitive. They're like the hardest fish to sneak up on, you might say. And so I knew when I was having dreams of permit, it was really teaching me about subtlety and sensitivity. Uh, but nobody else would ever have known that, known that. And so you have to remember dreams are personal, but they're also cultural. Meaning if you were raised in a particular um Part of the world, uh, there are going to be cultural symbols that are going to show up in the dream that, again, somebody else would have no connection to whatsoever. And then there's also universal symbols. Um, and so it, I, it can be frustrating. If, you, if you're raised speaking English, it's kind of like learning to speak Chinese. Chinese is kind of an odd language because it's a language with a lot of different symbols. And so, but I encourage everybody to do it because it's kind of like the more you start to understand the language of your dreams, the clearer they become to you. And they start to become more and more clear, sometimes very directly clear. <clears throat> but it all begins with paying attention to begin with. I was just talking to somebody yesterday, too, and he said, you know, sometimes if you just keep writing them down, you might see the same themes over and over again. And I love this story. He goes, I was this young kind of lone wolf kind of guy, never had friends, not connected to family or anything. And I'm from Jamaica. I'm living in Florida right now. And I was getting ready to go back and visit my family. And I kept having these profound dreams of being of really good times with family. Like I was getting along. Everybody was loving and friendly with each other. But I, that had never been my experience in the past. And so but I went back to visit family and it was it was amazing. Everybody was loving and it was great. And so that's the other thing about paying attention to dreams. I think when you take, you think of life like a pendulum swinging back and forth, if the pendulum in your life goes too far to one direction, dreams try to pull you back more into balance in the other direction. And even though the dreams might not make sense at first, you can kind of see the dreams are like telling you, hey, you're getting out of balance here. And so he had a wonderful experience with his family, but it was almost like the dreams were preparing him for that. Mm, that is, that's really beautiful. I, I, I think that it's so important what you said about dreams are very personal. And what I was getting was that really it's, you are the best person to understand what your dreams are by learning your own language of them and understanding what they mean to you. Yeah. And so what's your recommended way of, of doing that, of getting to know them? 
Um, <clears throat> well, the first thing I would do is just start writing them down or recording them in some way. Do it over and over and over again. And the funny thing with dreams is, just like a few, I think I read just yesterday that the average person has 70,000 thoughts a day. And, but the funny thing is, if you were able to write down every one of your thoughts, you would find that 90% of them are the same thing. <laughs> it's not 70,000 different thoughts. It's probably half a dozen different thoughts, just dressed up in different clothing. And the same is true with dreams. And so you'll start to figure out just by writing it down, spending some time with it, looking at it, uh, you'll start to, it'll just start to make sense to you. Um, I think it's helpful in the beginning, but I think ultimately you have to chuck it. There's a lot of good books on dream symbols. Honestly, in the long run, you should throw them away. In the short run, it might be kind of helpful. Um, there's a lot of good uh, dream forums, dream groups where people work with dreams. Um, but again, I would encourage everybody to hold it lightly. There are very sophisticated, very psychic, very intuitive dream people they're gems, but they're rare. And there's a lot of other people that are really going to imprint their version of your dream onto you. And so the answer is, yes, look around for help, but ultimately you're on your own. And I think that's by design. Yeah. I, I love that because it's so true in, in anything that we encounter in this world is we have to always be cognizant of other people kind of projecting their ideas or their views in a way that even not intentionally or maliciously even, but just through their experience, then try to impose that onto our experience. And if we are not cognizant of, of the difference, we can minimize our own experience and, and what it is meant to mean for us by just putting too much weight in in what someone else says so I appreciate that you called attention to that because I also think the same I think that you know to a point it's our responsibility to understand what what our our relationship with ourselves is trying to teach us what our intuition is trying to teach us what our dreams are trying to teach us and they're coming to us for a reason yeah so and they're being filtered through our own experiences and like you said our culture and things like that and so it we are definitely the wisest source for understanding what it all means but I like too, like you, you know in the beginning you need training wheels right to kind of get familiar and learn a little bit and gain some stability maybe in understanding and grasping the, the vastness of it until you get a little bit more familiar with your own language and can let go of those training wheels um and be and be on your own and and understand them more so that's exactly right yeah i totally agree that's that's awesome so john tell me about your experience of unconditional love and i'm just kind of curious how has this worked for you in displaying it both with yourself you know you were you were talking about kind of what led you into the spiritual retreat was you were feeling it sounds like a lot of shame around yourself and just the situation that you were in 
and and how how did unconditional love and how did you come to this place where you could kind of release that and and transform it into unconditional love for yourself well i think it began at the retreat that i went to um i didn't have a lot of crazy spiritual experiences those came later like you know a year or two later um but the first thing i discovered was i hadn't really realized how much i kept people at a distance hadn't really realized how much I was afraid to be vulnerable in front of other people. And so the very first experience of what felt like unconditional love was in that retreat. And it was my first experience of what felt like intimacy with other people. And boy, the teacher was really masterful at getting, you know, the, I think there was probably 35 or 40 of us all together to trust each other. And it's amazing when that trust and intimacy is there, how deep you could go. And I think the, um, the most visible manifestation of unconditional love is compassion. And they kind of go hand in hand. <clears throat> and you start to realize like everybody's journey in their own way is a challenge. It's unique. It's difficult, sometimes painful, sometimes traumatic, like everybody. And what might be painful to somebody else might not be so painful to you, but to them it is. Or what might not be a challenge to you is really a challenge to another person. And then, um, um, you know, it's funny. I heard, I heard somebody say, I think his name is uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, and he wrote a book called I Am That. And it's a really popular book. I think it's still a popular book. And he has this great quote. He says, um, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. And that's one of my favorite quotes. And so the path of unconditional love, in a way, kind of is like the I am everything. And so um, <clears throat> one of the ways through heart center meditation, we learn to interact with other people uh, and to, you know, you were just talking about earlier about projections is um, taking all those projections that we put onto other people and realizing, literally, I am that. I mean, it's so easy. You know, we all have egos. We all have identities. Well, I'm this way. I'm not that way. I like this. I don't like this, you know. And um, But in, in reality, if you dive deep, you literally are everything. You're in everything. It's just the ego kind of divides and conquers and creates a sense of separation, but just that, that uh, you know, identifying with a Republican and I can't stand the Democrats, I guarantee on some level you dive deep, there's an inner Democrat in everybody and vice versa. And so um, does it mean that I'm walking around in a state of gushing love all the time for everybody? No. Um, but I have had that feeling just enough to know, wow, this is a whole different way of appreciating life. And, um, and from the place of love, from that place of I am everything, you really do realize how interconnected we all are, too. Mm. So it's a bizarre thing. You realize how separate everybody is, but you also realize, uh, I'll, I'll share a dream I had with you. I had a number of what I would call unity dreams. And, you know, I, I grew up really competitive in sports and stuff like that. And I still watch football. And um, <clears throat> so in this dream, I'm I'm standing in a big, big horseshoe-shaped football stadium. There's like 100,000 fans there. One side 
like the north side is for one team and the south side is for other and they're all just screaming rabid fans i'm sitting right deep in the horseshoe and all of a sudden everything goes silent and every single person has transformed to a giant piece of rose quartz you know like a six foot tall big hunk of rose quartz with this glowing throbbing pink um heart in the middle and everybody was connected like in that moment it was just like this pure unity and then poof shifts back everybody's like yeah you killed the other team you know (laughs) and so i think that's also the journey of love you start to see beneath the exterior beneath the uniqueness you start to see where we're all intimate we're all connected as well I love that. There's this quote I had on my wall for a long time that says, endeavor to see the souls of all you meet. Yeah. And I can't remember where it's from, but it is, it's so easy. You know, if, if you're walking around in and engaging the world in your headspace and just kind of primarily through the view of your ego, it's really easy to see the separation. It's really easy to see through your own projections, through your own beliefs and biases and things like that. But then it's also really easy for you to pick up on other people's like you're just going like ego to ego as like Eckhart Tolle says in the power of now, like we're just a bunch of egos and engaging with other egos. And the, and the problem with that is, is that it, it makes us really susceptible to being triggered by each other and I think that that's kind of what we're seeing a lot of the polarity in our our culture now especially in politics especially in religion where you know you have these it's almost like these screaming fans in the stadium where like one is so for one side and the other is so for this other side but really that's just one layer of the whole of who we are and really truly every single human is connected and we are connected through our our heart center and just through the truth of who we are and so I think that's really cool that's a really cool dream I really Uh like that everyone just turns to rose quartz with hearts in the center that's brilliant beautiful and I, I just remembered that perfect silence like suddenly the whole stadium's just you could hear a pin drop this perfect silence. And then after 10 seconds, everybody's screaming and going crazy again. Yeah. (laughs) That's so cool. So what, tell us another, like a story or something else from your book that is is your favorite. Um, I'll tell you a healing story. Um, That's probably, you know, uh, probably one of my favorites. And I, and part of the reason it's my favorite is like so many things that happened in the book, it was so unexpected, like, wow, I didn't know this was possible. And so in the early days, um, I had met a woman and I was very, uh, so I'd gone to this weekend workshop and, and people were, um, three people had got up and were doing sort of intuitive readings. And two of the three, it was kind of gibberish, but this one gal, she was so clear in her guidance, you know, and she's from Chicago and had what I would just call a kind of a Midwestern sensibility about her. And I was like, wow, she seems like, you know, really grounded, practical, but still really intuitive. Like that's, and so I was very interested in things psychic and intuitive in my early days. And so, um, you know, we sent a bunch of email back and forth and afterwards, uh, 
And so after a few months, we decided to have a date and I had to go to Chicago on business. So I went there for a three day weekend and we went on a date. And so it was a really nice connection and it was great. Well, so she was telling me that um, on her days off, she's a massage therapist and she'd been doing it for 20 years. And um, um, the, um, what she told me was over time, she started to get messages from people's bodies. And she started to cautiously tell the people who she was giving a massage to the messages that she was getting. And she says, over time, people started coming to me more for the messages than for the massage. And so you might say she kind of was transforming into a, an intuitive or a psychic and giving readings. As, as, so I was very curious in such things. It's like, well, how do you get messages from the body? And she goes, well, hold my feet. The feet are a good place to get messages. So she lays down and I'm literally holding her feet. And I feel like a total idiot. I'm not getting any messages from her body. And I'm like, oh my God, I barely know this woman. And I'm holding her feet up against my <laughs> chest like this, you know? And I'm like, and all the voices in my head are going, oh, she's been doing this for 20 years. You're not going to get any messages on the first try. And another part is saying, just relax, see what happens. And another part is saying, you're not trying hard. Another part is like, you're trying, not trying hard enough, you know? And back and forth, all these messages. And it's just like, it felt like the longest three minutes of my life. And then just when I was ready to give up, I had this hyper vivid image of what looked like a three or four year old little girl in white underwear running in, in total terror in the darkness and looking back over her shoulder like this, you know, that's all just this image. I don't know what I was expecting. I thought the body was going to talk to me. I didn't expect to have an image, but something in me intuitively wanted to do something about that image. And so I looked at her. I didn't tell her what I saw. I said, hey, would you let me do what's coming to me intuitively? And she looks at me and she goes, yeah, but I might cry. Like something was happening that was bigger than the two of us. It was really bizarre. So I went over and sat down next to her. I put my right hand over my heart chakra and my left hand on hers. And Renata, the second my hand touched hers, it felt like two lightning bolts, literally, physically, passed into my right shoulder, across my body, out my left arm and into her, like with a physical, like a boom, boom kind of a feeling. And suddenly like this Christ-like aspect has showed up and, and he's placing a coat of white light around this little girl I saw in the dream. And she's clutching this coat of white light around her and the, the coat is so bright, it illuminates all the darkness around her. And the little girl looks so happy wearing her coat of white light and the whole thing, and it's hard to describe, I wasn't doing this. I was just shoved aside watching all this happen. And the whole thing was over in like 10 seconds. And this gal who I only met once before is just bawling. And so we went to dinner later and she told me when she was four years old, her dad had walked out on their family, disappeared and never came back. Like nobody knows where he went. Did he die? Did he run off with another gal? Nobody knows. And in some ways, it seemed like this little four-year-old terrified abandoned girl never grew up or it was still a part of her. Even though this woman I met was 40 years old, she still had this very traumatized little girl living inside her until John showed up. <laughs> so, And it was the weirdest thing. She'd been single her whole life, never got married. And a year later, she met the man of her dreams, got married, and I never heard from her ever again. And so something bigger than just you know me being intrigued by her and her by me happened 
in that moment. In fact, I talked to a woman about it and she said, you know, sometimes coming back to egos, sometimes our egos are in the way of things that need to happen. And we have to kind of set our egos aside. This is part of what healing is. And then our guides work through us. And she felt like her guides, meaning this woman I met, and your guides had this plan. And both of you just had to get out of the way because carrying the little abandoned girl in her in the, wasn't serving her anymore. And it was time for her to move on. And uh, so sometimes life is so much grander and bigger, but most of the time we just don't see it. So <clears throat> that's probably that's, one of my favorite stories. Oh my gosh, that's an incredible story. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. That's really cool. I um, I am a Reiki master practitioner. And so the the art of reiki is is kind of just that it's it's setting aside the mind and just kind of opening opening my body to act as a channel for this this healing energy to come through and flow through me and and into the the person i'm working on and so it i love i love that you you know physically felt it kind of enter your body and come through you in that way. I, I have not experienced energy in that way. I, I I feel it in my hands and come through my, my chakras and stuff, but it's very, um, it's very just like smooth. It's not like literally Christ consciousness, (laughs) like coming through. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I did energy work for a while too. And I can tell you, if I think back, that's the only time it was big and grand and dramatic. It was the only time it was like, go big or go home. Because <laughs> every other time, it's, it, I mean, I, you know, it's exquisitely subtle, you know, and you're just trying to get out of the way and just let that subtle energy move through you. So I don't know why it was so big and grand and dramatic, but it was definitely cool. So you never know, Renata, who knows, tomorrow might be completely different for you. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. I think that's um it kind of like makes me think too. I I've tried to adopt a, a lifestyle that's that's conducive to like literally raising the vibration in my body too. Like everything from the foods that I eat and the way that I move my body and just trying to like clear the channel even more for, for energy to flow through. And so just a lot of cool things that can be, that can be done with energy work and just with healing. And I, I love that, you know, it's so funny just the other day, I did a hypnotherapy session Mm -hmm. with, um, someone I'm someone that was recommended to me from a friend and we kind of, we regressed into, this kind of the same thing. It was just this incident that happened in childhood that was linked to like my ability to like kind of sell myself in my business and stuff like that. And so it was just this interesting view of, of inner child work that, you know, so many of us don't realize that, we have instances from childhood that, that affected us in a really profound way and are still affecting us in our adult life and oftentimes holding us back or prohibiting us from achieving the goal, like certain goals that we want to set. And it might be, 
you know, more in one aspect of our life than it is the other. Like we might be killing it over like in finances and career, but not in relationships or vice versa. And so it's really interesting. I love inner child work. And I think it's really, really profound that in that healing that you experienced, that was the vision that that you got. It was essentially an inner child healing. And I think that's so profound. And so many of us, it's not really very talked about like inner child work is coming up and out and that's really great, but it's, I mean, it's certainly not something that is prevalent in our society. It's just kind of like we have childhood and then we enter adulthood and then everything's supposed to be fine. <laughs> We're just supposed to be <laughs> like not? know what's going on. Yeah. So I think I, that's, uh, that's really awesome. I like to tell a story like because I agree with everything you said. I I can't speak for hundred percent of the people in the world, but it does seem like everybody's got some kind of pain, wounding, trauma, difficult memories from childhood and they carry them over into adulthood. It's just how it is. And it affects who they are, the decisions they make, what they like and don't like. And I like to use the story, like if you were three years old and a big black dog viciously attacked you and bit you, you're probably going to go through the rest of your life, or at least a good portion of your life, being afraid of big black dogs or big dogs or dogs or black dogs. You know what I mean? And so I think we all have the opportunity though, later in life at some point to look at that again, like, Hey, Maybe I just found the one big black dog that was having a bad day. <laughs> you know, maybe I don't have to be afraid of big black dogs all the time or dogs or black dogs or, you know. Um, and so I, I think that's how I see a lot of inner child work is reviewing some of the experiences we had early on in life and just saying, can I see it differently now? Can I live my life differently now? And it's not always easy, man, you know, some of those things that are traumatizing can take a long time to clear up, but I think it's really valuable work. It's so freeing because you're, you're really getting to the root cause and it's something that it may like, it started like in your example, it started as that, but then it could develop into so much more. Like maybe it was one dog and then it turned into all dogs and then it turned into, you know, whatever, maybe it formed into some other manifestation of fear. And so, yeah, but you're right. It's not easy, especially depending on, on what the trauma is or what the incident was. It it takes, it, it is a healing practice. There's not a magic pill for it and it's not easy to go through. I mean, it's painful, but when you get to the other side, there's nothing I, that I've experienced that is more liberating and more freeing than having lived most of your life under the influence of this, of this thing that you didn't really even know about. And then coming into the awareness of it and then healing it and then being on the other side is it's, there's nothing like it. It's, it's the most profound sense of accomplishment. I think for me that I've had it is being able to navigate those and, and, you know, and like to your, to your point in your book, it's so much of that while you're in that healing process is, is the practice of just letting in this unconditional love and, and kind of helping that and using that to, to ease and resolve a lot of what's going on and and just be in that space of 
of the difficulty of, of, of going back to it and having to release it and heal it. And, you know, it's usually hard and, and, you know, scary for, for a lot of people. Um, so love plays a, a huge role. And then once you do it, like you said, it's so much easier to, to view someone with different views and perspectives from you as that rose quartz because you know that they're just having their own experience too and that all of those experiences have have formed who that person is and that's their right as a human to live their own experiences and form their own opinions and that's the beauty of it so I love it yeah I totally agree I think yeah I've done uh, men's work for about 10 years now and I I would say just off the top of my head 90% 90% of men's work is just um, some guy tripping up over something, almost inevitably going back to when was the first time you experienced that? Well, I was like six years old with my dad, you know, and, you know, and, and something happened when his father, when he was young, where he, they, he doesn't trust men. How's that serving you like? Well, not very well anymore. Well, let's see if we can change that now. And that's all it is. It's just going back. When's the first time you can remember it? It's almost inevitably in childhood. Can we unhook that memory? You know, because now you're, you know, 20, 30, 40 years older. And um, and can we see the world now through your an adult size instead of through a kid size? Because almost inevitably that child has some way of responding to whatever it is that happened. You know, they become maybe really aggressive, they become the bully. Well, you know, do you really want to be the bully when you're still 60 years old? You know, <laughs> it might have worked for you when you're a little kid, but come on, probably not going to, it's not working. It's holding you back, you know, or maybe they had a tendency if things got scary, they're just out of here. They just leave. You know what I mean? Every single thing is scary. I'm out of here. How's that serving you? Running from everything. All that. Ah, it's not serving me very well anymore. So, um, yeah, I think it's valuable. At some point, I think everybody realizes that the way that they're interacting with life isn't working anymore. It may have worked when they were in elementary school or junior high school or high school, but it's time they've outgrown it and it's time to live life from a different point of view. Hmm. That is such a delicious point. And I love it so much because I think that... In the, in the past several generations, it has been normal to, in very early in life, like in adolescence, decide or understand or have decided for you what you are to do for the rest of your life, whether it's your career or your relationship or, you know, even like certain traditions and religions and you know, I think it's, it's certainly getting better now, but it's, it's understanding that you can actually evolve and change out of that. If it, if it isn't working for you anymore, just because you made a decision five or 10 or 20 years ago, doesn't mean that that has to be your decision now for the rest of your life. And you know, it, it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to grasp onto that. And I think what happens is that they internalize it and they don't know what to do with it because they just feel like they should be doing this because this is the decision that they chose. And maybe their parents, you know, played a role in it or their culture played a role in it or, 
their ego played a role in it. And so they're just kind of on this machine, but it's not really working out for them. And they just, uh, you know, they just internalize it and they just become unhappy and stressed out and do things that are kind of against their values because they don't know what to do and they feel stuck. And so I think it's so beautiful that you called to it. Like, it's like, it's okay to change and grow and to move out and to, um, move out into other things and to look at beliefs and thought forms and perspectives that you once had and say, hmm, well, is this really working for me in the most optimized way that I want to be living it? And if it's not, then it's okay to just let it go. Then what do we need to do to let it go and change that and, and move on and adopt something new and different that does serve you? It's so powerful. Yeah. I, uh, in fact, can I share a story? Please. <laughs> So um, I actually been toying with writing a book called I Don't Have to Do It That Way Anymore. <laughs> That's the title. And because the very thing that you were just talking about and we were talking about is, you know, my experience is we all have egos and the ego to me is just my identity. And my ego doesn't care if I'm the hero or, you know, a bad person or a shame and guilt filled person. It just wants an identity. And um, but that identity, which is kind of cool in a way, but it also can trap us. And so we start to form habits around that identity. And then when the identity is not serving us anymore, it's sometimes really freaking hard to change old habits into new habits. And because the brain is kind of wired to repeat itself over and over again, it kind of gives a sense of certainty. And so um, the story I want to tell, uh, true story uh, so I used to own my own company, I used to fly probably 25 times a year. And in this story, I was flying from Seattle to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and I was calling on a retailer there. Uh, I can't remember who it was. And I had a connection in Dallas. And the day before my trip, I threw my back out. And all I kept thinking was, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible. Who the hell wants to sit in an uncomfortable airplane seat you know, for and travel all day. And my appointment was the next morning for 30 minutes, then I had to fly all the way back. So it was going to be like two full days of flying. And, um, and it's, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. I wonder if I'm even going to be able to walk by the time this ends. And so I get up the next morning, you know, like I had to get up at like four in the morning and I'm hoping my back's going to be all better. No, it's, it's, if anything, it's worse. It's stiff and sore. And I get to the airport and it's so stiff and sore. I have to kind of reach out, grab the roof of my car, kind of pull, do a little pull up to kind of swing my legs out. And I walk in and I'm just about to hand the TSA agent my, you know, my boarding pass and my driver's license. And I'm grumbling the whole time. This is going to be terrible. This is going to be terrible. And all of a sudden in the back of my mind, I hear uh, the song, don't worry, be happy. And like, it's like some part of me is humming the chorus for that song, you know, over and over again. And I'm, I'm having this strange, bizarre, like, hmm, some part of me is saying quite happily. Another part of me is like, just sure, it knows how it's going to play out, because this is how things always are with me, you know. And um, nothing worse than sitting in an uncomfortable seat when you've thrown your back out. And, and so I did at that point in my life know, like, you know, vibration, uh, can be healing and I actually could feel the song being aimed it sounds really weird at my lower back so I hand the guy my boarding pass and my driver's license and I just said oh screw it I'm just gonna hum <laughs> like a mantra you know I'm just gonna start humming the chorus don't worry be happy and the cool thing with airports is there's a lot of ambient noise you know in the airport and on the plane so nobody notices you humming the same song over and over again 
And so all the way from Seattle to Dallas, I must have hummed that thing, you know, a thousand times. That's all I did, like a mantra the whole time. And and it was funny when I, I had a window seat and the guy who got on the the middle seat next to me literally was built like a sumo wrestler. I said, really, are you kidding me? So I'm not like <laughs> pinned crookedly against the window seat, you know? And again, the voice is like, oh, this is gonna be terrible. I just kept singing and humming the song over and over again. And so if, if 10 is the worst pain, the start of the trip, my pain was at a six. Well, when I got to the airport in Dallas, it was a four. I'd never experienced that before. I'm, well, I'm going to keep going with this. So I, from Dallas to Jacksonville, I'm humming the song. And again, an impossibly large woman gets in the middle seat. I'm having this experience like, is this some kind of test from the universe? And so I, I hum all the way there. I hum on the ride from there to the hotel. I hum over dinner with my sales team. Um, and, you know, I'm humming, I'm humming at the hotel before bed. And the next day, you know, my pain is maybe a three. I did my, my meeting and I hum all the way from Jacksonville to Dallas. Again, an impossibly large man is sitting in the middle seat. I kept humming. Then I get to Dallas and I can't believe it. You know, uh, the plane's just about to take off and I've got an empty seat next to me. And I'm thinking, yes, a reward from the universe. This is going to be great. I finally have an empty seat next to me. I can stretch out a little bit. No, a woman is walking down the aisle with a two-year-old in her arms. <laughs> Guess where she sits? Right in the middle seat next to me. And he looks, he's a two-year-old that looks like a four-year-old and he's kicking me the whole time. Doesn't matter. I just keep humming. And by the time my plane lands in Seattle, where I started the day before, my pain's gone from a six to a one. And so that to me is a perfect example of how I would get stuck in, because it's always been this way, I think it's always going to be that way again. And mm -hmm. so just to kind of keep opening my mind to, well, again, coming back to the black dog, just because one black dog bit me doesn't mean they're all going to bite me. And so it's, I have to be vigilant about kind of having an open mind about how things are going to play out and that it's not always going to be the same way. And um, so, and it sounds really funny. That's one of those sort of bizarre little experiences that I share as a story in my book that had a very practical application. I can't tell you, you know, my wife and I have been on some long trips. I remember my back getting a little creaky and sore, my butt getting sore, my legs getting stiff because it was a long drive. And I started grumbling about it. So wait a minute, wait a minute. I started humming, don't worry, be happy. It's like within minutes, it's like, no, oh, this isn't so bad, you know? So I have to be vigilant about not always repeating old habits and keep staying open to, I don't have to do it that way. I think I think that's um, an incredible place to to write a book because it's it's so true and the power of you choosing something new you choosing like just because this maybe looks on the surface like it's gonna suck I don't have to buy into that story and I can choose a different story and I can choose to focus some, on something just anything else like you were it was something so simple you were just humming a song but it had a positive vibe to it obviously yeah. don't worry and just be happy so I'm sure that helps but like just focusing on something different yeah literally relieved you of your pain in just a couple of days and that is profound and there are so many stories from like Dr. Do Joe Dispenza <clears throat> he he has written at length um about 
his own healing journey and how he was in a really bad bicycling accident. And he really essentially just did the same thing. He used literally the power of his mind and his thoughts to heal his body when modern science and medicine was saying that he was he wasn't going to walk again and there's stories like that all over the world and and you know but the key is like you said it is is it takes vigilance It, it takes paying attention it takes being present enough to to say when when to notice that when you're kind of going down that path of oh this is gonna suck and and just kind of you know projecting the past into the future and just catching it and saying oh I can choose again I don't have to do it this way just because I did it that way last time I can choose something different but and it's really interesting it's it's like you said it's again vigilance because our brain already has that pattern on loop so that's just that's kind of the path of least resistance for it to go and so it takes it takes some work showing up and saying no I'm going to think something different and and as you do it though it's just like exercising a muscle it gets easier and easier and and eventually you transform you know those negative connotations and those negative stories that automatically pop up so that's I have a friend who's a counselor and she said john you would not believe how many clients i come to and i point and i say no the grass really is greener over there but they won't go there because even they know it'll be better it's the unknown and even though they're trapped in something that totally sucks it's there's something a sense of safety that some people get in in predictable patterns Mm -hmm. and so that person might know yeah I know it might be better over there but I don't really know what it's going to be like because I can't control it I'm going to stay over here even though it sucks because at least I can predict that and uh, and so yeah it does take courage and vigilance to step into something new and I think usually in the end it does turn out to be better but in the short run it can be it can be difficult. I, I used to manage lots of people and I, I watched people that would, um, you know, get up, you know, say, I've been smoking weed my whole life, I'm going to quit, or I've been drinking my whole life, I'm going to quit. And it's exciting for them. They quit, they go to AA, you know, they go to meetings, but then they realize, oh my God, my whole life revolved around getting high all the time. My whole life revolved around friends. We all got high all the time. Now I don't fit in anymore. And so that's part of the courage and transformation is realizing sometimes the even changes that you make that are positive on the surface are going to require a, a whole makeover, so to speak. But you have to see it through to the other side. And um, I think that's what trips people up and why they start and then they go back. They start and then they go back. <clears throat> yeah, I completely agree. Because you do have to be willing to let go of that, of that identity and of that, you know, the, the systems and the things that you've always known. And it is, it's like you said, it's leaving the comfort of the familiarity of what you've been experiencing and not knowing what you're going to get. And it's, it's terrifying for a lot of people, but yeah, I think that's exactly right. Especially, you know, people that are on their own spiritual journey and their own kind of, they're going through this process of raising their consciousness and 
um, just really getting in touch with their heart center, they start to realize that things around them kind of fall apart. Like all of a sudden their work doesn't, they're not aligned with their work anymore. And some of their friendships that they have, or maybe even their intimate relationships don't really make sense to them anymore. And it can be really hard when, when you start to see the world and see yourself through a different lens. And then now all of a sudden, kind of everything that was built with the previous lens doesn't match this one anymore. And you, and you're stuck with a tough decision of, do I kind of, you know, I've talked to several people and it's not like the best analogy, but blow up your life a little bit, <laughs> like yeah. just kind of, I mean, certain things just, yeah. you know, it's kind of how, it's kind of how it happens. And um, yeah, so I think that that's a big, you know, like you said, that's, what's really hard for people is, is that it's, you start to have a new habit, whether it's stop or stopping a new habit, right. Stopping drinking or stopping, um, like overeating or, or, um, going to like being involved in a certain group. And then it's like when, when everything that you do or so much of your life is tied to that thing and you stop doing it, it's, it's an identity crisis. It's, it's a death of that version of the ego. And, and, and yeah, it's, you know, that's where courage is, is huge. And, you know, and also, you know, support having support from, someone that's like in alignment with the the version of you that you're in the process of becoming and who can, can help navigate that. It can be really helpful too. And books of people that have been through it and kind of, kind of illustrating you're not alone. Like this is, this happens and this is how I navigated through it. So powerful. No, I, I totally agree with everything you said. And sometimes it does feel like when you're going to make that identity shift, you look around, the support is there. It's almost like the universe wants to support you in that shift. And that was definitely true in my life. And, um, you know, it's really funny. It's like, oh, walking the path of unconditional love. It's so great. You know, who doesn't want to love everybody, feel connected to everybody. But one of the things becomes really clear when you're walking that path of the heart center and unconditional love is all those people and all those things you didn't think were worthy of love are in your face. And it's just, that's kind of like the one of the things they don't tell you about walking the path of divine love or unconditional love. It's like, yeah, you don't like Donald Trump. Guess who's going to be showing up in your dreams all the time. You don't like your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-wife. Guess who's going to be showing up all the time. And so um, it's a beautiful path. It can be a challenging path too. So I love uh, Ram Das said he he, had a, he was talking. There's a little short video online. I think somebody else put together of a talk he did called Dark Night of the Soul, and he talked about on the spiritual journey, like like you have a bunch of friends and you go bowling every night, you know, every Wednesday. But then suddenly you don't like to go bowling anymore, but all your friends still like to go bowling, and it's kind of a lonely place, like. You're like, God, I used to love bowling. I don't love bowling anymore, but all my friends still love bowling. And that can be a really lonely, difficult place. You know, what do you love now? And does that mean I have to have get new friends? And so, yeah, it's uh, transformation is a beautiful thing, but it's a, it's a challenging thing too. Absolutely. Well, John, is there anything that you would like to leave our, our audience with? Um, yeah, so there's a great quote from Rilke that says some evening take a step out of your house which you know so well enormous space is near 
And that's the quote. And so that's what I would like to tell the audience, that house you know so well might be your habits, it might be your ego, it might be your personality. And if you feel like you've outgrown it or outlived it, step out of it. And so I like to say another analogy is we all build sort of a house of bricks around us and that there's a point in life where it's appropriate to start to dismantle that house, take the bricks down now, and you'll find enormous spaces near. There's so much more out there than, than we're aware of. I mean, it really is true. I think psychologists say we're 20% conscious and 80% unconscious, but I've heard some spiritual teachers say we're like 99.99999% repeating unconscious. And just to step out of what you think you know so well, open your mind, open your heart. Um, there's so much magic and miracles out there. Synchronicities are out there. And I, you know, I, I like to say I've been walking the path of the fool because so much of my, my journey in my book was like, wow, what was that? I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> you know, and the things that I would stumble into would cause me to read books. And, uh, you know, I, I had a whole um, portion of my book around Kundalini energy. And it's like, I didn't even know what the word meant. And um, so I felt like some, my conscious part was always playing catch up. And, but even though it can be terrifying, uh, the journey is enthralling. And if you feel kind of stuck, it's okay to step out of your current identity and just open up to something bigger, greater, and newer. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for showing up. And John's book, The Synchronicity of Love, Stories That Heal, Transform, and Awaken is available on Amazon. I will put the link in the show notes. And John, thank you so much for, for showing up and, and playing today and sharing your your stories about unconditional love and the language of dreams and just the journey, the journey of traveling to get to know yourself, the inner journey and what that means and what that looks like and healing. It's all beautiful. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation right now. I love nerding out, geeking out with you on all this stuff. <laughs> Likewise. All right. Until next time, John. Okay. Thanks for not it. <laughs>